Would you join me in Romans chapter 3? If you need a Bible, ask and it shall be given to you. Romans chapter 3. Last week we were in the same chapter. Last week we made it all the way to verse 27, but we rushed a little bit to get where we were going. And we said this week we're going to circle back, so this week we're circling back. I think for the next two weeks, actually, we're going to circle back. Because Paul says some things here toward the end of chapter 3 that are incredibly important. And I want to go slowly enough that we can soak in the enormity of what Paul is saying and really ponder the implications of his words for you and for me and for the body of Christ that we are together. Strange analogy, but I think of it like last football season. I'm one of those people didn't watch a single game the entire year, but tuned in to watch the Rams win the Super Bowl. And at the end of it, I said, well, yeah, that's a good game. At which point Hector, who was living with us, biggest Rams fan ever, watched every Rams game wearing a different Rams jersey every week, I said, yeah, it was a good game. Hector loses his mind. <laughs> good game? You don't even know. You don't know the way this team fought and struggled and overcame adversity and refused to give up and built upon. You didn't see any of it. You can't appreciate what just happened. I was busy. <laughs> but he probably had a point. Because I was too busy to dig into the season week over week, too busy most weeks to even watch the highlights. Yeah, I didn't appreciate everything that went into the championship. And that's the thing I don't want to do with God's word. So I want to slow down, circle back, read, ponder, pray, and, and, and really appropriate to our hearts how it is that Jesus our champion in every sense of the word, became champion. And how he made us, you and me, eternal victors with him and what that means for us today. If you've made your way to chapter 3, let's scroll back up from where we left off. Go back to verse 21 and we're going to read starting there. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. Jew, Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short, have fallen short, continue to fall short. Except now... We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, a propitiation that we receive through faith that demonstrates his righteousness. Because of in, his, in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a lot, right? It was a lot last week. It's still a lot. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to, I want to take a look at this passage three different ways. I want to look at it through 
three different lenses. I want to look at the anticipation it speaks of, how we got there, the regular season, if you will, the Old Testament that led up to the championship. Then I want to look at the revelation that Paul is speaking of, what happened on the cross, what happened on that day. How was everything that the Old Testament was anticipating, promising, foreshadowing, how was that made manifest? How did that come together? And then finally, I want to talk about the implications. The implications for the world, the implications for you and me individually, the implications for all of us together as church. I know we've prayed, but, but if you don't mind, Lord, we just come before you again still. And we ask, Lord, would you anoint this time, anoint your word as, as it is spoken. Anoint me as I speak it, as I teach it, Lord, that, that my words would be your words. None of us is here by accident, all of us by divine appointment. You have something for us. Personally, collectively, meet us here, Lord. You've called us here, meet us here. Overwhelm us here with your love. Impart to us your truth. Change us, Lord. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Question for you. As we rewind the tape now, as we look back at the Old Testament, centuries of anticipation, looking forward to Messiah. During that time, in those pages, what's the most often quoted passage from the Old Testament? The, the passage that's quoted most often in the Bible. What passage in the Bible is most often quoted in the Bible? I had a pastor ask me the question this week. I realized... I didn't know. I knew that Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy more than any other book, so that's the first place that my mind went. Maybe it's the Shema. You know, that, that, that passage, that prayer, beginning in Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might. And these words that I command you today should be on your heart. Uh, teach them diligently to your children and so forth. That is a good guess, but it wasn't it. So then I went to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and, but almost immediately I was, I was, I was sure that wasn't it. That's the, that's the passage we quote most often from the Bible, but it's not the passage the Bible quotes most often from the Bible. But Psalm 23 got me thinking of Psalms. And there's a lot in Psalms, and I'm thinking what in Psalms might be the answer, maybe Psalm 2. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. And that was, I was proud of that, that was a good guess. Because that's quoted a lot. That comes up a lot in Scripture. It still wasn't right. But Psalms got me thinking of David, because David wrote a lot of the Psalms. And I started wondering if the most quoted passage was maybe God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I'll set up your seat after you, who will come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. A messianic promise. No. Important passage to be sure, but not the most quoted. I'll let you off the hook. The most quoted passage in Scripture from Scripture, we find in Exodus 34. Moses is going up to the top of Mount Sinai the second time. He's got to get a new set of tablets because he broke the first tablets. And while he's there, he says, God, reveal your glory to me. God says, okay, but take shelter in the cleft of the rock. And as the Lord passed before him, 
Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. Well, that's the Gail Irwin passage. I should have known. Yeah, that's the, that's the passage upon which he based his book, The Father's Style. And for good reason. That's the first place in Scripture God describes his own attributes. And it's the most quoted passage in Scripture by Scripture. It's almost like the Holy Spirit is calling our attention to something. And he is. A number of pastors and theologians actually consider this passage the pivot point of the Old Testament, not just because it's quoted as often as it is, but because of what it says. Look at it again. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Well, that's certainly true. That all makes sense. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who God is. By no means clearing, excusing, withholding punishment from the guilty? Wait a minute. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and at the same time, by no means excusing the guilty. How do you do both? How can both of those things be true? How can God hold sinners accountable for sin and forgive them? How can God be a God of justice and also a God of mercy? I hear the answer. The answer is Jesus. But the Old Testament authors didn't know that yet. And that question, how can a God of justice also be a God of mercy, is the question the Old Testament asks. It's the issue around which the Old Testament revolves. God just told us that's who he is. That's what he does. He tells us here, he repeats it again and again. He says that it's true. It's not only true, but it's truth. This is who I am, says God. This is my character. These are my attributes. It's an identity function, but it doesn't explain how both can be true at the same time. And it's a question that goes unanswered throughout the Old Testament. We don't find the answer in the pages of the Old Testament. And yet, it's unanswered. But it's very much anticipated we talked about it a few weeks ago. We said a mystery in Scripture, mystery is a technical term when it comes to Bible. A mystery is something that's in the Old Testament concealed that we then find in the New Testament revealed. And the number one example of that is God's plan to express His mercy while simultaneously satisfying His justice. Not fully revealed until Jesus. The question is asked, but it's not until Jesus that the answer is given. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't give us clues. Look back at our text, verse 21. God's righteousness apart from the law, his plan to forgive us and make us righteous, even though we've broken the law, 
even though we've proven that the law can't save, it can only prove that we need saving, that plan was witnessed by the law and the prophets. How so? The five books of Moses, the books of the law, they point to the solution again and again. And the prophets of God over and over anticipate how God is going to do this. Forgive guilt while not ignoring the guilty. Over and over, the Old Testament foreshadows it. So much so that Jesus spends a whole afternoon walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples talking about it. Seven-mile journey, Luke 24, 27. While they walked seven miles, Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, expounded to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself, and he probably didn't finish. Because what do we know? The volume of the book is written of him. Jesus says, hey, you heard what happened on the cross, right? Let me tell you how your scripture, our scripture, the Hebrew scripture, promised this would happen. I'm guessing he started at Genesis 3.15, the first of the five books of Moses and the first prophecy in Scripture where God says to Satan, yeah, this isn't going to be the end of the story. I'm going to send a redeemer. You're going to bruise him. He's going to wreck you. Genesis 9.4, still the very first book of the Bible, before the law is even given, we read about what the law will require. Sin will demand the shedding of blood. And then we get to the law, we get to Mount Sinai, and as the law is given, as we read the law, we see again and again and again and again God's plan, his provision to cover Israel's sin, not forgive, but cover it, how? By the blood of animals, by innocent blood. We see God pointing to this substitutionary atonement this blood shed for the remission of sin. But whose blood would be sufficient to wipe away our sin? The blood of the Old Testament sacrifices paid the interest. It kept God from calling the debt due, but the principle was still intact. Whose blood would be sufficient to wipe away the sin? to pay it in full. Is such a thing even possible? In hindsight, it's easy to see the answer. In hindsight, Scripture practically shouts the answer. We see it in the Passover. As the angel of death passes over all of the households with blood smeared on the lintel, on the, on the doorpost. We see it in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Father is told to sacrifice his son, he obeys, except at the last moment the plan has changed and Abraham was told that God himself will provide a sacrifice, alternate rendering, God will provide himself a sacrifice. All through all the Old Testament, we see this foreshadowing. Maybe most clearly in Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53, where the Holy Spirit speaks of one who will be wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace will be upon him. By his stripes, we will be healed. The picture is there. The picture is there in literally every Bible story, every prophecy, every feast and sacrifice and ceremony. The picture is there. And it was there in outline form. From the very beginning, from the fall of humanity, 
immediately God was there with a promise. And with every episode in Israel's history, every prophet speaking to God's people, God was filling in more and more of the detail, shadowing in the color and the texture, the identity of the Redeemer, the method of the redemption. Literally centuries of anticipation. Centuries during which Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1.18, the angels themselves were watching intently monitoring what was happening, asking, how is God going to do this? Because there was no redemption, right, for the angels that fell. And so the angels were saying to each other, God didn't do it for them. He didn't do it for those among us who fell. How is he going to do it for these guys? How is this going to play out? Centuries of anticipation, gradually more and more, a little more and a little more clarification, a little more detail, a little more color, a little more flavor, a little more texture. But only when Jesus came was the fullness of God's plan revealed. Only when Jesus died and rose again was the mystery in the Old Testament concealed, gloriously revealed. The mystery of how a righteous God could forgive sin without ignoring his justice, and that's what Paul is celebrating in this passage. Now, verse 21, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. God can forgive us and make us righteous without violating his justice. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets. We see that now. It was anticipated on every page of the Old Testament. We know that now. And we know now how God can keep mercy and forgive iniquity without leaving the guilty unpunished. It's by faith, verse 22. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. And if Exodus 34, 6 is the pivot point of the Old Testament, this is the pivot point of the New Testament. Pivot point of the New Testament, pivot point of the Bible, pivot point of human history. Not the verse necessarily, but the idea Paul says it here. He says it again in Romans 5.1. He's going to keep saying it all through this letter. He says it in every single letter that he writes. We can be forgiven and made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Not belief in Jesus Christ. Demons believe. They're not saved. Acts 16, a slave girl indwelt by a demon, chased after Paul, even saying, hey, these guys are saying that Jesus is the way to salvation. She was saying it. Maybe she even believed it, but she herself wasn't saved. Why not? She didn't put her faith in it. She knew the truth. She didn't grab hold of the truth. She believed the chair would hold her weight. She never sat in it. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Dependence on, reliance upon, surrender to Jesus Christ. We're saved by jumping out of a plane and saying, Jesus is my parachute. He's the way, the truth, the only way I'm going to live. The only way I can be saved. Verse 22, the only way anybody can be saved. And everybody, Paul is underlining, everybody needs to be saved. Why? Verse 23, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Heard a pastor paraphrase the gospel this week. I love what he said. He said, I am a complete idiot. 
but my future is unimaginably bright. And absolutely anyone can get in on this. I really like this. Because I identify with the first part. I am a complete idiot. But by faith in Jesus Christ, I identify with the second part. My future is unimaginably bright. And anybody can get in on this. And everybody needs to. Because apart from Jesus, our fate is sealed, right? Apart from Jesus, our fate is not only not bright, it's unimaginably, unendingly, agonizingly dark. Apart from Jesus, our destiny is hell. Go straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. But Jesus rescued us. Through faith in Jesus Christ, verse 24, we can be justified freely by his grace. Freely, many understand as meaning at no cost to us, and that's true, but freely, better translated, means undeserved, without cause, without merit. It's solely because of God's love that we can have eternal life with him. How does God do this? Jesus, but how does Jesus do this? Still verse 24, through the redemption that is in him. We see that word redemption used in ancient literature in a lot of different contexts. We see it used in the context of slavery. Slaves were redeemed, purchased from the slave market. We see it used in connection with prisoners of war. POWs were redeemed. They were ransomed. Money was exchanged for their release. Those of you who are my age or older, you probably remember taking pop bottles or milk bottles to the store to be redeemed. You brought them to the store. They gave you five cents. They bought them back. That was a good gig when I was seven years old. Jesus bought us back from the slave market of sin. How? How did he redeem us? Through the propitiation, verse 25, of his blood. Big word, what does it mean? It means his blood paid the price, paid the ransom. His blood, and more importantly, what his blood signified. The wrath that he bore. We're saved through the propitiation of his blood, blood shed by the Son of God, who, because he was God, was able to trade places, not just with me, not just to bear my wrath, but your wrath and the wrath of everyone who's ever lived. He died for all of us. His death satisfied God's justice against all of us. Now, all that's left for us is to put our faith in him, to say yes, I believe that, I need that, I Choose that. And the reason that the answer to the question posed in the Old Testament is so elusive, how can a righteous God be just and merciful both at the same time? It's obvious now, but, but the re and in hindsight, I mean, we can see it. It jumps off the page. But the reason it was so elusive, even as... The Old Testament writers were writing, even as the Old Testament prophets were prophesying and yet not understanding the fullness of what they were saying, is because only Jesus could do that. Only someone who was fully God and fully man could accomplish that. God became man, remained God, but became man. 
Man, so that he could die, so that he could shed blood for the remission of sin. God, for two reasons. A, so that he could shed innocent blood. He wasn't corrupted by the sin nature that you and I are burdened with. And two, so that he could die a death, so that he could shed blood that was sufficient for the remission of all of our sins. One man, even if he were innocent somehow, could only die for one other man. If he weren't innocent, he has to die for himself, and that's where we were. But God who became man can die with blood shed that's sufficient for all. How brilliant. And no wonder no one saw it coming. God is going to set aside the prerogatives of divinity, cram himself into human form and tabernacle among us to offer himself a sacrifice? No wonder no one saw that coming. That God would resolve the paradox of showing mercy without excusing the guilty by taking the wrath that we deserved upon himself. Tim Keller says it really succinctly. God did not set his justice aside. He turned it on himself. How glorious. I mean, in every sense of the word, right? How glorious. And because he did, today you and I benefit from a principle that endures into our judicial system. It's the principle of double jeopardy. Not the kind with buzzers and a daily double. But a legal principle, a judicial principle of double jeopardy applies to us. We benefit from it. Because when we stood accused of crimes before God, accused by God before God, when our divine judge had more than enough evidence to convict us, he had us dead to rights. More than enough evidence to convict us of crimes that carried a mandatory sentencing guideline of eternal death. Jesus jumped up. Jesus raised his hand. Jesus came forward. Jesus stepped in and Jesus pled guilty. I did it. Convict me. Punish me. And God did. God the Father accepted his plea and sentenced him and punished him in our place. Punished him on the cross. Punished him instead of us. And what that means for us today, if we've put our trust in Jesus, if we've accepted his offer, if we, if we don't argue with him when he says punish me, then today, when Satan accuses, when he says, look at what Patrick did, and there he did it again. Are you watching this? And then that was even worse than the first time. When Satan accuses, because that's his job, and he's really good at it, Jesus, our advocate, our defense attorney, that's, that's his role today, Jesus who lives to make intercession for us, Jesus answers and says to Satan, you might be right. He probably did everything that you're talking about. He probably did more. It's Jesus. He's omniscient. He knows we did more. But Jesus also tells Satan, even if you're right, you can't put him on trial for it. Not anymore. Someone has already been tried. Someone has already 
pled guilty, someone has already been punished for those crimes. I know because I was there. I know because that someone was me. Jesus lives to make intercession for us. Every accusation that Satan brings against us, Jesus has the same answer. You can't try him for that. Double jeopardy applies. Someone has already been punished for that crime. Someone has already died for that sin. That's how, Paul says, Skip down to verse 26. We're going to circle back. We'll soak up 24 and 25 more next week. But verse 26, that's how Jesus can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how God can be just, holy and righteous, justice and justice, and the justifier, the one who makes it just as if we've never sinned. The one who's, that's how God can be just and merciful. That's how God can dispense righteous judgment, but not on us. And and that's the revelation Paul is celebrating here. And I think we can celebrate with him. Because it's amazing. But having unpacked that, what are the implications? Next bullet point. Final point on our outline this morning. What are the implications that we should be considering? First and foremost... That's the gospel that we should be preaching. Amen? Because there's other gospels out there. It's a, it's a marketplace of gospels. Jesus is awesome. Your life will be better with him. Live your best life today. Raise your hand, accept him into your heart. That's not the gospel, family. The gospel that Paul is talking about The gospel that saves us says grace saves. And grace is able to save because Jesus traded places with us, was a propitiation for us. His death redeems us. His death makes the righteousness of God available to us, available to all who believe through faith in him. That's the gospel we need to share with the world. And the world needs to hear it and obey it. The gospel isn't an idea to be agreed with. It's a command to be obeyed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But God has chosen us to give the world that opportunity. Jesus has entrusted that mission to us. Preach the gospel. That's the gospel we need to share with the world. It's also, point number two, it's also the gospel we need to preach to ourselves. Why? I like how Paul Tripp puts it. There's no one in my life more influential than me. No one speaks more loudly into my life than I do. So we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to ask ourselves constantly, what am I believing? Who am I worshiping? Where am I going for my identity? We need to be asking ourselves those questions constantly. We need to be reminding ourselves continually, our debt is paid. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're children of God, adopted by the Father. We're no longer sinners. You'll sometimes hear people say, I've even said, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Strictly speaking, that's not true. I was a sinner. I have been saved by grace. Today, I'm a saint. 
It's an important distinction. Today, in Christ Jesus, we get to pursue holiness not out of fear, but out of gratitude. I get that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but that's fear in the sense of reverence. We don't have to stand before God in terror anymore. There's nothing we can do that will make him love us any less. There's also nothing we can do that makes, will make him love us anymore. That's the gospel we need to be preaching to the world and preaching in the mirror to ourselves. And final point, it's the gospel we need to be preaching to each other. We need to be making sure the grace that we just read about, the grace that we believe in and rely upon, the grace that saved us informs every aspect of who we are. Every part of what we do together is the body of Christ. That quote that I, sh sh that I shared earlier, I'm a complete idiot, but my future is unbelievably bright and absolutely anyone can get in on this. That was from a pastor named Ray Ortland. I had an opportunity to hear him speak on Monday. I was blown away. Because he was talking about the gospel. He's a pastor, that's his job. And what he had to say, I'll be honest, what he had to say on the one hand was obvious. But at the same time, he was highlighting something about which I think many churches are oblivious. He was talking about the gospel and he said, when it comes to the gospel, doctrine is not enough. Now, that got my attention because a couple weeks ago I read this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half telling them doctrine is not enough. Interesting coincidence. Yeah, if you believe in that kind of thing. Doctrine is not enough. The doctrine of the gospel says we have forgiveness through Jesus Christ who died in our place. Through him we're saved from wrath and made righteous, and that's what we've been talking about all morning. But Pastor Ray's point, and I think it's incredibly important, we can preach that gospel, and we can get as specific and detailed and theological as we want about propitiation and expiation and, and other theological terms. We can repeat and impart that doctrine to ourselves and to others and deny it both at the same time. We can preach the gospel and deny the gospel both at the same time, and we will, we will deny the gospel if our relationships and our values and our vibe, our priorities and our humility and our honesty and our freedom and our fun and our fragrance, what, what, what together he piles up and, and says culture, if our culture is not also surrendered to the gospel, our culture as a church, our culture as a family. And the way he illustrated this rocked my world. Are you ready for the most offensive picture you've seen in a long time? I'm, I'm serious. I'm going to show you something and it's horrifying. And the only reason I'm doing it is to make a point. Go ahead and, and throw that picture up there, Miss Christie. Right. Now, what does that photo tell us about their doctrine? Biblical, as far as we can tell, Jesus saves. I'm guessing that the people hidden under the robes would listen to the message I've just preached and agree with everything they've heard. 
But what does the photo tell us about their culture? Something very, very different. Gospel doctrine celebrates the marriage of love and justice. That culture doesn't celebrate either one. That's, that culture makes a mockery out of love and justice. That culture is one of hate. Let's get rid of the slide, but let's keep talking. For the church of Jesus Christ to be the church of Jesus Christ, the doctrine that we preach needs to be reflected in the culture we practice. And this isn't a new idea. Francis Schaeffer talked about this in the 20th century. Also, speaking of the gospel, he said, orthodoxy of doctrine must be, must be, joined with orthodoxy of community. So this isn't a new idea that some fancy pants guy decided to talk about at a conference and I decided to bring it back here. Francis Schaeffer was talking about it 70 years ago. Paul was talking about it 2,000 years ago. Galatians 2. Remember in 2020 we were in Galatians? Me neither. <laughs> but in Galatians 2, Paul rebukes Peter. Why? Peter's ministering in Antioch and he gives in to peer pressure and decides to keep kosher. Now this is Peter after Acts chapter 10 where he had a vision of all kinds of food coming down from heaven and God said, take and eat. And Peter said, not so God, because Peter always says, not so God. And God says, no, no, Peter, you don't understand. That which I've called holy, you don't dare call unholy. And Peter said, well, okay. And then he went and started preaching about the freedom that we have in Christ. But he gives in to peer pressure. He starts keeping kosher again in Antioch because that's what the cool kids were doing. Galatians 2.14, Paul says, stop it. And Galatians 2.21, he tells us why it was a big deal. Peter, you're setting aside... Other translations say nullifying the grace of God. Peter was nullifying with his actions the grace of God. Paul wasn't saying anything about how he was believing. He was talking about how he was behaving. He wasn't living a gospel of grace. Instead of welcoming Gentiles with the gospel, he was living a gospel of works. He was putting a barrier up between them and the freedom of Christ that Jesus died for. And Paul's point, which is Schaefer's point, which is Ray Ortland's point, which is my point this morning, it's not enough to preach the gospel. We have to practice the gospel. The unity of love and justice that we've been reading about need to not inform only our doctrine but our decisions and our direction and our very disposition. Or we will nullify with our actions everything that we try to convey with our words. So what does that look like, practicing the gospel? Probably a lot of things. I'll be honest, heard the message on Monday, I'm still processing. And I think I'm going to be for a while. And I think I'm going to be talking about it for a while. I think this is critically important now more than ever in a nation that is so divided, so ready to point fingers, so ready to accuse, so reluctant to give the slightest benefit of the doubt in the church and outside of the church. I think this is critically important in this time and in this place that God has seen fit to send us. But I think whatever else it means, Whatever else it looks like, this gospel culture that Pastor Ray talks about 
And he's written a book by that name if, if this is piquing your curiosity. I think it's got to start with grace. The undeserved favor freely given by God, that's the basis of our salvation. I think having been saved by grace... Our ministry to the world and to each other needs to be saturated in grace. Because not only have we been saved by grace, we are being saved by grace, right? Three tenses of our salvation, we have been saved, we will be saved, we are being saved. None of us has arrived. We're all still in process. Sanctification is underway for all of us. Just being honest about that as a start, being honest that we still struggle. Struggle with our past, struggle in our present. Being honest, we haven't stopped needing grace. And a community that's honest about that, transparent about it, willing to admit that we need grace, is going to be that much more willing to offer grace. And it'll be easier for those outside to accept grace because they're seeing it given and received by the people talking to them about it. They'll be more willing to accept a gospel based on grace when they see it played out. Starts with us. I mean, mean, it started with Jesus. But having been saved by Jesus, by grace, We need to not pretend we no longer need it. It's a good step for finding grace for others, giving grace to others, isn't it? Admitting, hey, you're saved by grace just like I am. I'm saved by grace just like you are. Finding grace and substituting grace for all of the other ways that we tend to interact with each other, the shaming, the posing, the fault-finding, the finger-pointing, the things that characterize so much of the body of Christ so much of the time. I borrowed that list from Pastor Ray because I thought it sounded... I mean, it it captures it. Shaming, posing, finger-pointing, fault-finding. Who's been on the receiving end of that? Shuts you down, doesn't it? makes you not want to open your mouth, makes you not want to engage with the body of Christ, makes you reluctant to love, reluctant to serve, paranoid about being loved and being served because you wonder what somebody's agenda is, what's their motive, how are they going to use this against me? Shaming, posing, finger-pointing, fault-finding, practical heresy is what it is. It's the behavioral equivalent of false teaching. It's conduct that denies the gospel. And we need to be done with it. Justice is easy, right? Going around pronouncing things, that's good, that's bad. That's right, that's wrong, that's easy. Especially when we're really sure we're right and somebody else is wrong doesn't mean it's not important. Talking about right and wrong, being clear on what's true and not true, that's vitally important. But so is love. Ephesians 4.15, Paul says what? Speak the truth in love. Why? It's not the gospel 
if both aren't present. The gospel is the union of truth and love. Speak the truth in love. You know how you've done that successfully? How do you know if you've succeeded in speaking the truth in love when you tell someone that you disagree and they walk away completely convinced of two things? One, you're really sure they're wrong and you really, really care about them. That's speaking the truth in love. When you manage to convey your certainty that they're wrong and the depth of your compassion for them. That's the gospel. The gospel is where mercy and truth meet together. Psalm 85.10. The gospel is where righteousness and peace kiss. That needs to be our lives. That needs to be our gatherings. Pastor Ray read something that he picked up from 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and that got my attention whole message seemed like it was tailored to get my attention. That got my attention because the pastor for many, many years of 10th Presbyterian was Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of my favorite Bible commentators. I'm reading his commentary on Romans right now. It's multi-volume. It's really dense. It's like, here's a verse. Let me talk for a chapter about it. 10th Presbyterian to this day, apparently, begins their Sunday gathering with a call to worship. They begin their service with these words, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. To you, we say welcome. I don't know if we're going to start our Sunday gatherings by reading that. It's not really our style. But I think it's worth starting to ask, starting to ask, continuing to ask. It's worth asking. Is that the attitude of our hearts as we come on Sundays? As we gather on Wednesdays and Mondays and the other days that the body of Christ assembles? Is that the attitude of our hearts as we greet each other, as we love each other, as we serve each other? Is it the fragrance that goes with us as we leave? The fragrance of people who have been with God because we've been with people indwelt by God. People ministering in the grace of God. Is it the impression that we leave with people throughout the week? The impression that trails behind us until we gather together on the next Sunday? Do we spend our days letting grace partner with truth in a way that beckons, in a way that invites, in a way that encourages people to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because they believe that they can, because they see that we have, and that we do, and that we are. Final quote from Pastor Ray. We are not in danger of believing the gospel too much. We are not in danger, you and I, of believing the gospel too much. But, and this part's me, the 21st century church in America is very much in danger of behaving the gospel too little. And when we do, like Paul says, we nullify it.
we undo all of our ministry. And worst of all, we rob God of his glory. Because the purpose of our ministry is the purpose of the gospel, is the purpose of our lives to glorify God. God who tells us, I am merciful and gracious, so much so that I sent my son to bear your guilt and suffer your wrath so that I could forgive your transgression, your iniquity, your sin. That's the God we have the unspeakable privilege of representing. I am the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. And because he is, and only because he is, we are his people, called by his name. Do we bear a family resemblance? Jesus, thank you Thank you for so much, for everything. For giving these words meaning, for giving for giving us life, for giving us hope, for giving us a future that is indescribably brilliant, glorious beyond anything we are capable of asking or thinking or imagining. Jesus, thank you. And Jesus, we call upon your name. We ask you, would you fill us with the grace that saved us. Fill us with the grace that is saving us. Fill us with grace to overflow us to testify of your goodness to those around us.